Good evening. Uh, my name is Dave Hinckley. I'm the Children and Youth Ministry Director here at URC. Um, when I was asked to preach uh, this week, Becky in the office uh, called me sometime this week to ask me for the title of my sermon. Um, and there is no point during the sermon preparation process that I sit and think, what am I going to call this thing? I'm terrible at coming up with titles. I'm looking for help. So if anybody wants to uh, help me name stuff that I am doing, we, we're, we have a middle school retreat coming up uh, in May called Spiritual Disciplines, which that's what we're going to talk about, but it's kind of boring, right? <laughs> the, the last sermon I preached, um, I think, ended up as the with the title, Exhortations to Young Believers, which I'm sure every young person goes on our website and says, does that say exhortations? Whoa, click. <laughs> All right. Um, the, the, <laughs> we're going to be talking about James chapter 1, verses 21 through 25. Um, I'm excited about it. I think you should be excited about it. Uh, James is the book that a few students and I are studying together at uh, LCC on Tuesdays at lunch. If you know anyone who's down there during that time, send them our way. Look, look for the guy with the big beard and pizza. Uh, we read, we've been reading through uh, different books for about a year and a half now. We're in James this semester. You probably know that this book is a letter uh, verse 1 says that it is a letter written to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, which is James' way of saying this letter is for not just the believers in one city or region, but it's for believers all over. And who this guy James is is important to, to figure out. This is not the, uh, the Apostle James, the brother of John, one of the 12, son of Zebedee, the one who was with uh, Jesus and saw him uh, transfigured. Rather, this is James, the brother of our Lord Jesus, who became an important leader in the Jerusalem church uh, after the resurrection of Christ. The book itself is different from the other letters in the New Testament. Some have said it's like the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. So the wisdom literature is like the books of Proverbs and Psalms and um, Job. So some have compared that type of literature to this letter from James. What this means is that unlike Paul's letters, which balance deep theology with instructions about how to live the Christian life, James is almost all instructions and encouragements toward godliness. But it would be a misreading of James if we understood him to be teaching a gospel other than the one preached by Paul, Peter, and the other apostles. It's important to recognize that the reason James is writing this letter is that he, he is concerned about antinomianism. This means that this is the idea that because you are saved from your sins, it doesn't really matter how you live. Paul, too, is concerned about this in his letters. Uh, he's careful that people not misunderstand the gospel in this way. In Romans 3.8, he clearly rejects this idea. 
And so since putting down this error is James' goal overall, his letter has less of an emphasis on explaining what the gospel is and more of an emphasis on explaining how people who believe in Christ should live. Which leads me to why I chose this particular text. I think in these texts, in this passage, James affirms the gospel of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. I think our verses tonight can be read as a thesis statement for the book as a whole, and a helpful summary and an interpretive grid for the study of this book. So this, this, this passage, I think, uh, is the gospel in James. There's your title. Um, so turn with me in your Bibles, if you would. Uh, page uh, 1011, James chapter 1, and we are going to start in verse 21. James 1, 21 through 25. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would work among us through your word tonight. We know that it's your desire to work in us by your spirit through the reading and applying of your word. Lord, we, we desire that. We ask that you would transform us by the renewal of our minds. We ask that you would give us ears to hear you in your word. Lord, would you speak to our hearts and grow in us a desire to follow after you, a love for you, a greater love for you, and a greater certainty in the hope that we have because of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Okay, so I see three parts to this passage that we've uh, chosen tonight. The first is verse 21, which says we are to repent and believe. The next is verses 22 through 24, which shows that true belief is lived out. And the third is verse 25, which gives a promise to the believer. And these ideas are the message of the gospel that James is preaching and the message of the gospel that James wants to protect by writing this letter as a whole. Let's start by looking at the words he uses in verse 21. James says we're to put away our wickedness and filthiness. The verb here translated put away carries the connotation of discarding dirty clothes or rags. It's the same verb Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 4, where he talks about putting off the old man. The word filthiness here carries the connotation of sweat and dirt after very hard work. The idea here is that the impurity of sin clings to us. It sticks to us. When my wife uh, was in school, 
she went on a field trip to a wastewater treatment plant, and I remember her telling me that and then asking me, we were homeschooling, should we do that for our kids? And I said, no, that, that we should not. That's nasty. Imagine, I apologize if this is actually your job. Imagine <laughs> if your job was working at the waste treatment plant. Probably, instead of showering before you go to work, you would shower every day after work. You would wash all of your clothes. You would just feel this sense of filthiness stuck to you. With the words he chooses, James wants us to connect that griminess, nastiness with our sin. Sin has polluted us, it sticks to us, and makes us dirty. And we need to get rid of it, flee from it, turn away from it. Now, as the book goes on, James is going to explain exactly the kinds of things he means when he says sin, exactly the kinds of things that pollute us. Depending on your familiarity with the Bible, you might assume that James here is talking about sort of the big and obvious sins that you uh, have, the ones that you've heard about, um, the ones you hear about a lot. Here are the things in the rest of the book that James calls sin. Showing partiality to someone who is richer or dresses nicer. Speaking with malice about some other person. Speaking evil about other Christians. Praying prayers that serve only your passions. Trusting your life's plans or your wealth more than you trust God. The wickedness that James calls us away from it's not just the type that you can hide from. Well, well, I never murdered anyone. I never committed adultery. It's those people who need to turn away from their uncleanness. No, we all must turn away from our sin. All of us are guilty and have fallen short of the glory of God. The reality is that sin lives in each one of us. In the children's membership class that I teach, we just finished last week, when we were talking about the reality of sin in the human heart, I always tell this story about when my wife and I uh, were first married. You know, you get married, and you're sleeping in the same bed with someone, and you re I remember having this thought, I better get to the bed first so I can get the good pillow. Now, you all know if you're married, there's more than one pillow on your bed, there's a, one of the pillows is better than the other one, right? You all know that. But, but think about that. Think about me, newly married, in love, promised to give myself in sickness and in health. All the better parts of me are supposed to be out in the forefront. Ephesians 5 says I'm supposed to love my wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Yet where does my heart naturally orient itself in a weak moment? Now that may be a silly example, but I'm not just being hard on myself. Illustrating, illustrating the truth of Jeremiah 17, verse 9, which says, The heart is deceitful above all things and des desperately sick. Who can understand it? And I'm not the only one in this room. Each one of us knows what it means to be self-centered. This is the common condition of mankind since the fall. God meant for humans to celebrate his goodness by putting others before ourselves, and none of us do it as we should. Here's the crazy thing. Ask any atheist, any person 
who doesn't even believe in the reality of sin, ask them if they put others before themselves as much as they think they should. Every person, if they're being honest, will say no. Every person, regardless of their theological or philosophical commitments, recognizes that they fall short of the divine standard of love. So what is being described here at the beginning of verse 21 is what we call repentance. It's the recognition that sin is alive in me and that I need to turn away from it. I need to take off those old filthy clothes of sin and put on something new. As we turn away, we're not turning to anything other than Christ himself. Nothing else can save us. We turn away from sin and we turn to our Savior. We can see this in the next part of the verse. After we put away our sin, we receive. We receive the word by faith. The Holy Spirit plants it in us and grows it into a life lived for Jesus. This is different than any other religion in the entire world. We're going through a series on world religions in the, and Christian heresies in the, the Dig High School Bible Study. Each week we try and answer these questions from the perspective of the religion we're studying. One, what's wrong with the world? And two, what's the cure? And we examine their answers compared with the, the biblical answers. Every other religion, every other worldview says, if you want to be saved from what's broken inside you, you must act, you must move, you must work, you must achieve. The gospel of Jesus Christ says you must receive. The active party in our salvation is God. The Father ordained it, the Son accomplished it, and the Spirit applies it. We are saved by grace, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Apart from Christ, I'm lost in my obsession with and worship of my desires. Apart from Christ, I worship myself like a God, instead of, and instead of that worship giving me joy, it destroys me. God says to that broken soul, that broken person, receive. This is the free gift of grace in Jesus Christ. The moment of the, re the realization of these realities, of the realities of my desperate hopelessness and the reality of God's grace freely offered is the pivotal moment of the human soul. Christ lived the life that we should have lived, and we are being, what we are being offered in the gospel is his righteousness implanted within us. What we receive after turning from our wickedness, recognizing our neediness, what we receive is Christ himself, the word made flesh. We receive him by faith, and we are freed from the power of sin. We are freed from the eternal consequences of sin. We're washed clean, not because of anything we have done, but because of what he has done. Being out from under the slavery of sin, we are free, for the first time, free to live as we ought to. We have been enslaved by our chronic, obsessive self-interest, 
slaves to our sin, now we are freed to do what we were made to do. An essential component, back in verse 21, of how we repent and receive this grace from God is the condition of our heart as we receive it. We receive it, this verse tells us, in meekness. In reality, this new perspective on ourselves is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's what Jeremiah calls a new heart. God renews us, works in us, and we are able to turn to him. I think that's, this is what the Old Testament meant when it says that David was a man after God's own heart. He was humble before the Lord. He wasn't perfect. He sinned in egregious ways. He wasn't above crying out to the Lord and, and asking the Lord to change his circumstances. But he always knew who he was before God. When confronted with his sin, he turned, he repented. We've recognized in meekness that we are indeed filthy because of what's come out of our hearts. We've admitted that we are deserving of the wrath of God because of what we've done. We see our own unworthiness, we recognize our need, and we turn humbly knowing that we are without hope unless God helps us. And God grants mercy. We receive the salvation of our souls, verse 21 says. He had, like David, we have a meekness and a humility to the authority of God, to the authority of his word. When we turn away from our sin and we turn to Christ in meekness of spirit, we will receive the gift of free grace implanted in our hearts by which our souls are saved. This is the glorious truth of the gospel. And what is more, James tells us, this word implanted in us grows into a life of fruit. Moving on to verses 22 through 24. James is, remember, writing this letter so that no one mistakes what believing means. It's exactly true that we are saved by believing in Christ, no question. But what does it mean to believe in something that never has any effect on how you live? James, I think, was afraid that some people were hearing, the gospel of free, hearing in the gospel of free grace that there was now no reason to be good. No reason to resist sin. As I said, this, this represents a profound misunderstanding of what it means to believe something. James draws a distinction to name this error. He says it's the difference between being a mere hearer of the word and a doer of the word. I, I used to carpool uh, at, a, at a previous job uh, with a man, we worked in Charlotte, and he and I had a long commute. We got to be friends, um, and I would talk with him about Christ and talk with him about uh, hope of the gospel. And he uh, told me, "Yes, I, I'm I'm a Christian." I asked him, "Well, do you go to do you go to church? Are you a part of a, a local body?" "No, no, I'm not. I'm not that kind of Christian." Um, he he told me that he went forward and prayed a prayer at a church, a local church, when he was a child. So he, he thought that that covered him. Uh, but nothing in the man's life demonstrated his belief. 
He didn't go to church. He didn't pray. He didn't try to live for God in any way. He lived a life of sin. He lived a life pursuing pleasure. When it came to how he would live, he gave no regard to Christ. He thought that since he'd come to some remote connection to God, as long as he didn't get too far with the obvious sins, that he'd be okay. This isn't belief. That's not believing in Christ. This was a hearer of the word and not a doer. He was deceiving himself. Believing that Jesus is God's son, sent to live the perfect life we could not live, and dying the death we, death we deserved to die means turning yourself over to him. Faith in Christ means following Christ with all that we are. It doesn't mean that we never sin again or that we won't need to keep repenting, turning ourselves from our sinful desires and following Jesus. It means that we belong to him and we do everything we can to show it. James says that this person who merely hears the word is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and then he immediately forgets what he looks like. He studies his own face and then he doesn't know it. Recall the first step of believing this gospel is repentance. It is meekly recognizing your helplessness apart from God. The second step is receiving that help, trusting in Christ for salvation of your soul. It's utterly inconsistent with these two things to say then, whew, glad that's over. Now I can get back to my life of sin. That person immediately forgot who he was. The person who truly repents and receives the gift of God's grace rejoices. And that joy turns immediately into gratitude. Gratitude for Christ, for his great deliverance. The heart responds to its true redemption with love for its Redeemer, a desire to show him your affection and praise. This one, this example is for my middle school boys in the house. Imagine a jewel thief running away from Spider-Man. He accidentally falls into the uh, Hudson River and Spider-Man dives in and pulls him above the water and starts swimming him back to shore. Spider-Man's holding his face above the water so that he can survive and he's, he's, he's gonna live, he's gonna survive. And with his, his gulps of air, he says to Spider-Man, what does he say? What about the jewels? Does this person know what state he's in? He's been rescued. He's been saved from death. Jesus didn't leave us wondering how we could show our love for him. He said in John chapter 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So our obedience to Christ, our following all of the imperatives that, that we find in James are rooted in our love and affection for Christ and, for, uh, and our gratitude for the great hope that he has given us, the great redemption that he's accomplished for us. What I'm trying to show you is I think James means here 
that belief in Christ means giving your life to Christ. Not in an abstract way, but in a day-to-day, deny yourself, take up your cross sort of way. It's trying to live so that the people around you will give praise to your Redeemer, so that when they sum up your life at the end of it, they'll say, wow, Jesus was good. Paul says it this way, we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Think about that. My, my body wants what it wants. It wants to pursue sin. It wants to sit on the couch and eat chips, not take care of itself. It wants to get right home after church, not stay and support the brothers and sisters. It wants to get the good pillow. But believing in Christ means giving myself up for his sake. It means loving God above all things and loving my neighbor as myself. It means giving when I think I should be given to. Doing these things would be like looking into the mirror and remembering who I am and what I am like. Remembering how great my salvation is. When you show gratitude to Christ in your life, you are remembering who you are. Finally, in verse 25, I'll read it again. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, will be blessed in his doing. James is talking about the gospel that he told us about in verse 21, calling it the law of liberty, the perfect law. Whereas the law given to Moses was not able to save the soul, this new word revealed in Christ is able. Indeed, the law of Moses, God's covenant with Israel, is made perfect and fulfilled in Christ. Following the law of Christ is true freedom. James says that the one who perseveres in this faith, the one who sticks it out and lives it out, will be blessed. Anyone who holds fast to this truth that your life belongs to Christ and you should pursue him in gratitude will be blessed in his doing. This is a great promise and encouragement given by the Lord in this passage. Notice that it does not say, we'll be blessed someday. It says, we'll be blessed in his doing. Blessed is a synonym for happy, joyous. So, do you see, you were made for this. The life of sin that you lived is not the life that will actually give you joy. Yes, we're talking about the joy of of the life to come, yes, but also joy in the now, joy in the, in the, the life that we live today. The bizarre logic of sin says, if I pursue my earthly pleasures, I'll have joy, but the opposite is true. Jesus says, if you seek after your life, you will lose it. The truth is that if you place your faith in Jesus, receiving meekly his grace, and spend your life on earth pursuing God, denying yourself, and seeking after his interests on the earth, you will receive a sustaining joy now 
that lasts into eternity. Jesus says if you lose your life for his sake, you will find it. Please don't hear me saying that you will never have troubles. In fact, the opposite is true. We are promised troubles. The Bible does not promise a trouble-free life. It does not promise uh, always health and always wealth. It promises sustaining and increasing joy that lasts into eternity. Christ says, come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and you will receive rest for your souls. This rest, this blessing, this joy will outlast your trouble. At some point, the world, the flesh, and the devil will just give out, will just give up. Jesus has overcome them. But if you trust in him and follow him and give your life to him, Christ will never give up. Your joy and rest in Christ can never give up. Let's pray. Father, I think most of us in this room believe these things to be true and want to pursue these things more fully. We want to uh, be, we want to give our lives to you uh, more fully each day. I pray that you would help. I pray that you would increase our sustaining joy in Christ, increase our affection for Christ because of what he has done for us. Make him bigger and bigger in our hearts so that the uh, desires of this world, the desires of sin, the, the, uh, the, the troubles that face us each day would become smaller and smaller as he becomes bigger. But I also pray for anyone in this room who does not have the joy of this salvation in Jesus Christ. I ask that you would enable them to turn to you in meekness, receive the gift of freedom in Jesus, I pray that you would plant faith in their hearts and grow it into a fruitful and joyful life. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.